Chapter One of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Two, Twenty Years After. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Two, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. Chapter One. The Shade of Cardinal Richelieu. In a splendid chamber of the Palais Royal formerly styled the palais cardinal a man was sitting in deep reverie his head supported on his hands leaning over a gilt and inlaid table which was covered with letters and papers behind this figure glowed a vast fireplace alive with leaping flames great logs of oak blazed and crackled on the polished brass andirons whose flicker shone upon the superb habiliments of the lonely tenant of the room which was illumined grandly by twin candelabra rich with wax lights. Anyone who happened at that moment to contemplate that red simar, the gorgeous robe of office, and the rich lace, or who gazed on that pale brow bent in anxious meditation, might in the solitude of that apartment, combined with the silence of the antechambers and the measured paces of the guards upon the landing-place, have fancied that the shade of Cardinal Richelieu lingered still in his accustomed haunt. It was, alas, the ghost of former greatness, France enfeebled, the authority of her sovereign contemned, her nobles returning to their former turbulence and insolence, her enemies within her frontiers, all proved the great Richelieu no longer in existence. In truth, that the red simar which occupied the wanted place was his no longer was still more strikingly obvious from the isolation which seemed as we have observed more appropriate to a phantom than a living creature from the corridors deserted by courtiers and courts crowded with guards from that spirit of bitter ridicule which arising from the streets below penetrated through the very casements of the room which resounded with the murmurs of a whole city leagued against the minister, as well as from the distant and incessant sounds of guns firing, let off happily without other end or aim except to show to the guards, the Swiss troops, and the military who surrounded the Palais Royal, that the people were possessed of arms. The shade of Richelieu was Mazarin. Now Mazarin was alone and defenseless, as he well knew foreigner he ejaculated italian that is their mean yet mighty byword of reproach the watchword with which they assassinated hanged and made away with the concini and if i gave them their way they would assassinate hang and make away with me in the same manner although they have nothing to complain of except a tax or two now and then idiots ignorant of their real enemies they do not perceive that it is not the italian who speaks french badly but those who can say fine things to them in the purest parisian accent who are their real foes yes yes mazarin continued whilst his wanted smile full of subtlety lent a strange expression to his pale lips yes these noises prove to me indeed that the destiny of favorites is precarious but ye shall know i am no ordinary favorite no 
the earl of essex tis true wore a splendid ring set with diamonds given him by his royal mistress whilst i i have nothing but a simple circlet of gold with a cipher on it and a date oh, but that ring has been blessed in the chapel of the palais royal it is said that mazarin who though a cardinal had not taken such vows as to prevent it was secretly married to anne of austria laporte's memoirs so they will never ruin me as they long to do and whilst they shout down with mazarin i unknown and unperceived by them incite them to cry out long live the duke de beaufort one day another long live the prince de conde and again long live the parliament and at this word the smile on the cardinal's lips assumed an expression of hatred of which his mild countenance seemed incapable the parliament we shall soon see how to dispose he continued of the parliament both orleans and montargis are ours it will be a work of time but those who have begun by crying out down with mazarin will finish by shouting out down with all the people i have mentioned each in his turn richelieu whom they hated during his lifetime and whom they now praise after his death was even less popular than i am often he was driven away oftener still he had a dread of being sent away the queen will never banish me and even were i obliged to yield to the populace she would yield with me if i fly she will fly and then we shall see how the rebels will get on without either a king or queen oh were i not a foreigner were i but a frenchman were i but of gentle birth the position of the cardinal was indeed critical and recent events had added to his difficulties discontent had long pervaded the lower ranks of society in france crushed and impoverished by taxation imposed by mazarin whose avarice impelled him to grind them down to the very dust the people as the advocate general talon described it had nothing left of them except their souls and as those could not be sold by auction they began to murmur patience had in vain been recommended to them by reports of brilliant victories gained by france laurels however were not meat and drink and the people had for some time been in a state of discontent had this been all it might not perhaps have greatly signified for when the lower classes alone complained the court of france separated as it was from the poor by the intervening classes of the gentry and the bourgeoisie seldom listened to their voices but unluckily mazarin had had the imprudence to attack the magistrates and had sold no less than twelve appointments in the court of requests at a high price and as the officers of that court paid very dearly for their places and as the addition of twelve new colleagues would necessarily lower the value of each place the old functionaries formed a union amongst themselves and enraged swore on the bible not to allow of this addition to their number but to resist all the persecutions which might ensue 
and should any one of them chance to forfeit his post by this resistance to combine to indemnify him for his loss now the following occurrences had taken place between the two contending parties on the seventh of january between seven and eight hundred tradesmen had assembled in paris to discuss a new tax which was to be levied on house property they deputed ten of their number to wait upon the duke of orleans who according to his custom affected popularity the duke received them and they informed him that they were resolved not to pay this tax even if they were obliged to defend themselves against its collectors by force of arms they were listened to with great politeness by the duke who held out hopes of easier measures promised to speak in their behalf to the queen and dismissed them with the ordinary expression of royalty we will see what we can do two days afterward these same magistrates appeared before the cardinal and their spokesman addressed mazarin with so much fearlessness and determination that the minister was astounded and sent the deputation away with the same answer as it had received from the duke of orleans that he would see what could be done and in accordance with that intention a council of state was assembled and the superintendent of finance was summoned this man named emery was the object of popular detestation in the first place because he was superintendent of finance and every superintendent of finance deserved to be hated in the second place because he rather deserved the odium which he had incurred he was the son of a banker at lyon named particelli who after becoming a bankrupt chose to change his name to emery and cardinal richelieu having discovered in him great financial aptitude had introduced him with a strong recommendation to louis the thirteenth under his assumed name in order that he might be appointed to the post he subsequently held you surprise me exclaimed the monarch i am rejoiced to hear you speak of monsieur de marie as calculated for a post which requires a man of probity i was really afraid that you were going to force that villain particelli upon me sire replied richelieu rest assured that particelli the man to whom your majesty refers has been hanged ah so much the better exclaimed the king it is not for nothing that i am styled louis the just and he signed emery's appointment this was the same emery who became eventually superintendent of finance he was sent for by the ministers and he came before them pale and trembling declaring that his son had very nearly been assassinated the day before near the palace the mob had insulted him on account of the ostentatious luxury of his wife whose house was hung with red velvet edged with gold fringe this lady was the daughter of nicolas de camus who arrived in paris with twenty francs in his pocket became secretary of state and accumulated wealth enough to divide nine millions of francs among his children and to keep an income of forty thousand for himself the fact was that emery's son had run a great chance of being suffocated one of the rioters having proposed to squeeze him until he gave up all the gold he had swallowed nothing therefore was settled that day as emery's head was not steady enough for business after such an occurrence on the next day mathieu mole the chief president whose courage at this crisis says the cardinal de retz was equal to that of the duc de beaufort and the prince de conde in other words of the two men who were considered the bravest in france 
had been attacked in his turn. The people threatened to hold him responsible for the evils that hung over them, but the chief president had replied with his habitual coolness, without betraying either disturbance or surprise, that should the agitators refuse obedience to the king's wishes, he would have gallows erected in the public squares and proceed at once to hang the most active among them. To which the others had responded that they would be glad to see the gallows erected. They would serve for the hanging of those detestable judges who purchased favor at court at the price of the people's misery. Nor was this all. On the 11th, the queen, in going to mass at Notre Dame, as she always did on Saturdays, was followed by more than two hundred women demanding justice. These poor creatures had no bad intentions. They wished only to be allowed to fall on their knees before their sovereign, and that they might move her to compassion. But they were prevented by the royal guard, and the queen proceeded on her way, haughtily disdainful of their entreaties. At length Parliament was convoked. The authority of the king was to be maintained. One day, it was the morning of the day my story begins, the king, Louis the Fourteenth, then ten years of age, went in state, under pretext of returning thanks for his recovery from the smallpox, to Notre Dame. He took the opportunity of calling out his guard, the Swiss troops, and the musketeers, and he had planted them round the Palais Royal, on the quays, and on the Pont Neuf. After mass, the young monarch drove to the Parliament House, where, upon the throne, he hastily confirmed not only such edicts as he had already passed, but issued new ones. Each one, according to Cardinal de Retz, were more ruinous than the others, a proceeding which drew forth a strong remonstrance from the chief president Mole, whilst President Blanc-Monsil and Councillor Broussel raised their voices in indignation against fresh taxes. The king returned amidst the silence of a vast multitude to the Palais Royal. All minds were uneasy. Most were foreboding. Many of the people used threatening language. At first, indeed, they were doubtful whether the king's visit to the Parliament had been in order to lighten or increase their burdens, but scarcely was it known that the taxes were to be still further increased, when cries of, "'Down with Mazarin! Long live Bruxelles!' Long live Blanc, Monsieur, resounded through the city, for the people had learned that Broussel and Blanc, Monsieur had made speeches in their behalf, and although the eloquence of these deputies had been without avail, it had nonetheless won for them the people's goodwill. All attempts to disperse the groups collected in the streets or silence their exclamations were in vain. Orders had just been given to the royal guards and the Swiss guards not only to stand firm, but to send out patrols to the streets of Saint-Denis and Saint-Martin, where the people thronged, and where they were the most vociferous, when the mayor of Paris was announced at the Palais Royal. He was shown in directly. He came to say that if these offensive precautions were not discontinued, in two hours Paris would be under arms. Deliberations were being held when a lieutenant in the guards named Cominges made his appearance with his clothes all torn, his face streaming with blood. The queen, on seeing him, uttered a cry of surprise, and asked him what was going on. As the mayor had foreseen, the sight of the guards had exasperated the mob. The tocsin was sounded. Cominges had arrested one of the ringleaders and had ordered him to be hanged near the cross of Du Trois-Rois. 
but in attempting to execute this command the soldiery were attacked in the marketplace with stones and halberds the delinquent had escaped to the rue de lombard and rushed into a house they broke open the doors and searched the dwelling but in vain comminges wounded by a stone which had struck him on the forehead had left a picket in the street and returned to the palais royal followed by a menacing crowd to tell his story this account confirmed that of the mayor the authorities were not in a condition to cope with serious revolt mazarin endeavored to circulate among the people a report that troops had only been stationed on the quays and on the pont neuf on account of the ceremonial of the day and that they would soon withdraw in fact about four o'clock they were all concentrated about the palais royal the courts and ground floors of which were filled with musketeers and swiss guards and there awaited the outcome of all this disturbance such was the state of affairs at the very moment we introduced our readers to the study of cardinal mazarin once that of cardinal richelieu we have seen in what state of mind he listened to the murmurs from below which even reached him in his seclusion and to the guns the firing of which resounded through that room all at once he raised his head his brow slightly contracted like that of a man who has formed a resolution he fixed his eyes upon an enormous clock that was about to strike ten and taking up a whistle of silver gilt that stood upon the table near him he shrilled it twice a door hidden in the tapestry opened noiselessly and a man in black silently advanced and stood behind the chair on which mazarin sat Benouin, said the cardinal not turning around for having whistled he knew that it was his valet de chambre who was behind him what musketeers are now within the palace the black musketeers my lord what the company treville's company is there an officer belonging to this company in the antechamber lieutenant d'artagnan a man on whom we can depend i hope yes my lord give me a uniform of one of these musketeers and help me to put it on the valet went out as silently as he had entered and appeared in a few minutes bringing the dress demanded the cardinal in deep thought and in silence began to take off the robes of state he had assumed in order to be present at the sitting of parliament and to attire himself in the military coat which he wore with a certain degree of easy grace owing to his former campaigns in italy when he was completely dressed he said send hither monsieur d'artagnan the valet went out of the room this time by the centre door but still as silently as before one might have fancied him an apparition when he was left alone the cardinal looked at himself in the glass with a feeling of self-satisfaction still young for he was scarcely forty-six years of age he possessed great elegance of form and was above the middle height his complexion was brilliant and beautiful his glance full of expression his nose though large was well proportioned his forehead broad and majestic his hair of a chestnut color was curled slightly his beard which was darker than his hair was turned carefully with a curling iron a practice that greatly improved it after a short time the cardinal arranged his shoulder belt then looked with great complacency at his hands which were most elegant and of which he took the greatest care 
and throwing on one side the large kid gloves tried on at first, as belonging to the uniform, he put on others of silk only. At this instant the door opened. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' said the valet de chambre. An officer, as he spoke, entered the apartment. He was a man between thirty-nine and forty years of age, of medium height but a very well-proportioned figure. With an intellectual and animated physiognomy, his beard black, and his hair turning gray, as often happens when people have found life either too gay or too sad, more especially when they happen to be of a swart complexion. D'Artagnan advanced a few steps into the apartment. How perfectly he remembered his former entrance into that very room! Seeing, however, no one there except a musketeer of his own troop, he fixed his eyes upon the supposed soldier, in whose dress, nevertheless, he recognized at the first glance the cardinal. The lieutenant remained standing in a dignified but respectful posture, such as became a man of good birth, who had in the course of his life been frequently in the society of the highest nobles. The cardinal looked at him with a cunning rather than serious glance, yet he examined his countenance with attention, and after a momentary silence said, "'You are Monsieur d'Artagnan?' "'I am that individual,' replied the officer." Mazarin gazed once more at a countenance full of intelligence, the play of which had been nevertheless subdued by age and experience, and D'Artagnan received the penetrating glance, like one who had formerly sustained many a searching look, very different indeed from those which were inquiringly directed on him at that instant. "'Sir,' resumed the cardinal, "'you are to come with me, or, rather, I am to go with you.' "'I am at your command, my lord,' returned D'Artagnan. "'I wish to visit in person the outposts which surround the Palais Royal. "'Do you suppose that there is any danger in so doing?' "'Danger, my lord?' exclaimed D'Artagnan with a look of astonishment. "'What danger?' "'I am told that there is a general insurrection.' The uniform of the king's musketeers carries a certain respect with it, and even if that were not the case, I would engage with four of my men to put to flight a hundred of these clowns. Did you witness the injury sustained by Cominges? Monsieur de Cominges is in the guards, and not in the musketeers, which means, I suppose, that the musketeers are better soldiers than the guards. The cardinal smiled as he spoke. "'Everyone likes his own uniform best, my lord.' "'Myself accepted,' and again Mazarin smiled. "'For you perceive that I have left off mine and put on yours.' "'Lord bless us! This is modesty indeed!' cried D'Artagnan. "'Had I such a uniform as your eminence possesses, I protest I should be mightily content, and I would take an oath never to wear any other costume. Yes, but for tonight's adventure, I don't suppose my dress would have been a very safe one. Give me my felt hat, Père Nouan. The valet instantly brought to his master a regimental hat with a wide brim. The cardinal put it on in military style. Your horses are ready saddled in their stables, are they not? he said, turning to D'Artagnan. "'Yes, my lord.' "'Well, 
let us set out how many men does your eminence wish to escort you you say that with four men you will undertake to disperse a hundred low fellows as it may happen that we shall have to encounter two hundred take eight as many as my lord wishes i will follow you this way light us downstairs banouin the valet held a wax light the cardinal took a key from his bureau and opening the door of a secret stair descended into the court of the palais royal end of chapter one recording by john van stan savannah georgia